Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Hey! We're off! We're off! Hello! My name's Nick and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to... That's uh, fan club! That's what we call it now, we call it. That's uh, fan club. Fan club, yeah. Uh, that's what we call it now. Um, we call but, it Nick, um, Nick and... Nathaniel Metcalf's... Fan club. That's fan club. That's um, fan. My, my, I'm Nick, and as ever, joined by my competent <laughs> and very capable uh, partner in crime, with a K, uh, T-U-R-T-L-E power, nurse! <laughs> That's fan club! Um, uh, uh, first rule of fan club, that is... Tell your friends about fan club. Just so, tell them. Well, please tell your friends. Just tell them. Tell them. Tell them. I feel some, some weeks now, I don't know about you, I feel like I'm shouting into a bucket. <laughs> uh, not a very big one. And <laughs> like the sort that you'd buy... Uh, seaside. Seaside. Make a little castle with. A shovel. Um, <laughs> and the second rule of fan club is, of course, just tell your friends Please. about fan club. Um, what are you drinking? I've got a, I've got a coffee. But what I've done here, because, because in the past, in the pre-COVID days of being in the, the Fubar Radio studio when we were recording this remotely from our own homes. The Fubar people would sort of keep bringing us teas and coffees throughout the show, meaning, of course, that come two o'clock, desperate for a wee. But I try and recreate that by having a flask of coffee with me so I can get, I reckon, two cups of coffee in that, two decent cups that should keep me going, hopefully, over the next couple of hours. I have a flask with me as well so that I can wee in it. Uh, <laughs> right. um, and at the end, it's still the same temperature, so I can just pour it into the toilet, and the toilet doesn't uh, is none the wiser. Nah. But I imagine it uh, imagines the flow is quite uh, quite heavy. So, oh, great! No, no, no. I had a, a misadventure once, and so the end of my penis is quite open, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like um, oh, what's it like? <laughs> It's, it's not even like a tap. It's more like, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, like a piping bag, but when you've cut it way too high. So it's basically, you just push in uh, buttercream straight through it. Um, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, that's, that's brought up unintentional imagery that I didn't, I did, I didn't mean, I just meant when I'm urinating, really. Because uh, when I'm hard, it closes right back up again. Anyway, so so we're off. Uh, if you've not been a fan of the show so far, give us five stars anyway online. <laughs> um, doesn't hurt you. Uh, doesn't hurt you. Might as well. Doesn't hurt you. Doesn't hurt you. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? You'll never listen to us again. And you've and and maybe if you hate the world that much. Maybe redirecting them to a show that you hate by giving us five stars is your ultimate revenge. So, how have you been this week, Nat? I've been fine, you know. I was just saying, it seems to go very fast, the weeks. I have to go, and it's good, because it holds holds me account, this show, because I have to think of, what have I done? (laughs) What have I been a fan of? It just feels like 
uh, we stopped doing this at four o'clock and then about an hour later we're doing another one feels like it's very um the weeks fly yeah. by for me well I've, i mean this is why we shouldn't talk off air because now we're just you know repeating ver by verbatim uh, a, a, a chat we just had but yeah. my observation on it was we recorded on wednesday one no two till four we meet we're meant to meet at one thirty. i tend to meet ten two um but i got stuck in traffic and um and then so by the time we finish recording it's four then we have a little chat afterwards and then it's sort of like it ends up being five and then that's wednesday over like you can do a bit in the evening but then it's sort of like well that's wednesday and it comes out on friday and so we sort of like mentioned that and then and then it comes out as a podcast on monday and so we mention it then and then it's and then on tuesday it's sort of like you just sort of like getting in your head right we've got a guest let's think about our guest a little bit what we're going to talk to them but and then it's wednesday and then you know, it's it's two it's one thirty two o'clock, and then we, we and it's just like it just breaks up the week in such a weird way that it just punctuates every other day, and then it's kind of the weeks just fly by. I hate it. <laughs> I feel that. I think it. I feel like I feel like it's sort of hurtling, hurtling past me. Life at the moment. I'm trying to trying to do things. I went up. I cycled up to the West End, which I haven't been up to, into town, which is nice. And it's nice to to sort of have a wander around. It's very eerie. Very few people. I got, there was a, nothing was really open apart from a little coffee shop where there was a guy who could be anything from about 30 to 50. Uh, but he was like a guy with very long hair in a coffee shop playing um, Pearl Jam very loud. And I thought, he's having a nice time, isn't he? He's gone. No one's coming in, so he's got his. He's turned his music up, and uh, he's playing it loud, and he's not really expecting anyone to come in and order a coffee. But I thought you might as well if you, you know, if you've gone to the effort of going into work to make coffee when most people are off work at home, play your own music. Have a yeah, nice. You've got, you've got to sort of wonder whether you know people aren't there, so he's playing the music. Or he's playing the music, <laughs> some people aren't there. It's, um, I, uh, I used to work in a pub, and I used to play my own music very loud. And the customers hated it. <laughs> hated it. Hated it. But, um, but when the manager was away, <laughs> no one could stop me. No one could. No one could. Um, um, but I had a manager once, and uh, he got so drunk... He was younger than me, which was the ultimate humiliation. He got so drunk that he was serving someone behind the bar and he was sick on his own shoes. So I turned him round and I grabbed him by the scruff of his neck and I slapped him in the face and I said, get out, get out from behind the bar. And I got in just as much trouble as anyone else. And I just think, God, I was trying to save this fucking sinking ship. But it's a different pub now. It closed down after I left. Not surprised. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, it's, that's true anyway so <laughs> it's all true I just grabbed him I was so disgusted with him sick on his own shoes Gra he was younger than me I was so angry he was my manager it's like what you mean? I've been working here for fucking three years and he's the manager he's drunk all the time 
He's sick on his own shit, so I slapped him in the face and I just said, Get out! And he did. And uh, there was no medals that day, I can tell you. I was absolutely livid. Anyway, the stand-up career took off and here we are. So, <laughs> um, uh, what have you, uh, are you... Are you well? Are you okay? I'm doing well, yeah, I'm doing all right. Yeah. Just think that as friends, it's important to check in with each other before we just start talking about shit. <laughs> um... What have you been a fan of this week? No, I've not watched an awful lot of stuff. Yesterday I watched Mission to Mars. Uh, oh, yeah. Wait, so you watched Domino, right? I've only watched half of Domino. I was going to watch the second half after this. It's a funny old business. It, it feels you... like... I think it's all... It, Domino's a Brian De Palma <laughs> film from last year, right? Came out it's last a... year. It's, um, so it's Brian De Palma. It's not the Tony Scott uh, Keira Knightley movie. No, this, this um, came out in 2019. Brian De Palma is set in the future of 2020. Now, right? 9th of June. Yeah. 10th of June. Yes. 9th of June is Mission to Mars. So 10th of June is today, is it? Yeah, it's today and Wednesday. But oh, if you're listening, it's Friday. Yeah. And if you listen on the podcast at any time in the future, the past. It's so uh, weird because when, because when I was watching it, I watched it maybe I guess it was probably about six weeks ago. But even I could have watched it. Didn't watch it last week. I could have watched it two weeks ago. I could have watched it three months ago. I've got no concept of when I watched it. But when I watched it, and it was it said tenth of June, and everyone was just right driving around Europe willy nilly. I was thinking, well, there is a chance that this could be accurate. That that we're all out by then. And also I was thinking, it is strange that no one's mentioning yeah. COVID. Do you know what I mean? Right. I do think a lot of the conversations will be dictated about, do you know what I mean? It's just sort of yeah. like, well, these main characters and none of them are ticking off their favourite restaurants that they've missed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Even if they're back, they're going, nice to be back at work, isn't it? Or exactly. they're cops investigating murders, so maybe it's not that nice. Well, maybe they never had any time off. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah. But um, so yeah, but so let's talk about Domino for a little bit. The beginning of Domino. Yeah. So he seems to have turned up for work, De Palma. Yeah. It's like it feels like because it's set in Copenhagen as well. It doesn't feel like. I mean, it's low budget for a Brian De Palma movie, but it doesn't feel like it's massively low budget for a European movie, which is kind of what it feels like. It feels like it's a bit of a Euro pudding me kind of. Um, it's all set in Copenhagen. Well, like a good comparison to what career would be if you looked at the um, Adrian Brody, uh, Dario Argento movie, Giallo. Right. Which was, I think that was probably made oh, uh, 15 years ago, mid-2000s, and it was so bad that Adrian Brody sued the production company saying, or sued maybe Dario Argento saying, this is absolutely not what I signed on for. This is one of the worst films I've ever seen. Like, it was it's, it's terrible. And it's sort of like Dario Argento's decline is kind of, it's sort of, it's sort of mind-boggling. But Brian De Palma, I, it feels sort of like, it's, it's sort of like almost a companion piece because, it, again, it's set in a European, uh, a European country, but also... The budget has been cut. It's like a tiny budget thing. 
but I still think that like there's that Hitchcock sequence, there's that Vertigo sequence at the beginning when they're going along the rooftop. Yeah, he's tried to he's tried to almost force a Hitchcockian set piece into a movie that doesn't have the budget to sustain those sort of set pieces. It feels like I think partly it's set in Copenhagen. It has that sort of feel of a. Um, sort of Scandinavian TV crime drama in its look and it's it feels fairly like um yeah it feels like a sort of TV movie-ish kind of thing but he is trying he is trying yeah trying to pull things out of the bag with a a low budget and it's sort of it's sort of remarkable really Con considering that the other what I think of as a companion piece but aren't but the other uh, Brian De Palma movie I was watching yesterday, Mission to Mars, was made after Mission Impossible, and obviously has a huge budget, absolutely huge for the time, and um, and that was a film that he signed on to to do like one of the executives at the studio a favour, because um, and it was sort of mad because what he's what he's done his whole career is um, he often does a film for the studio and it's a big hit and they go what do you want to do next and he does a more sort of personal brian de palmery movie so he would have done like mission impossible <coughs> studio and mm -hmm. then he would have done snake eyes for himself mm. and, and then snake, snake, eyes, snake eyes wasn't wasn't really well regarded but it was at no. the time when nicholas cage was transitioning from uh actor to action star yeah and it did, I think it probably did uh, totally fine. But in that De Palma documentary, it was a thing where apparently like when they were making Mission Impossible, like his agent or whoever asked him to do it was like, Brian, they want you to do this movie. It's a Mission Impossible movie based on a TV show with Tom Cruise. Are you interested in this? And he was like, absolutely, because it's definitely a massive hit. So after that, I can do whatever I like. So he was like, it just sounds like an absolutely tacked on hit. So rather than being at all, like, reserved about doing it, he was all up for it, completely like, I'd love to do Mission Impossible. Also, it's right in his wheelhouse. Do you know what I mean? It's like a, a, a mystery suspense thriller. Um, yeah, I mean, you could even take, you could even take the title Mission Impossible off that first one and it was, you know, it could be sort of like an espionage because it. yeah. it's so far removed from the series basically the series was about a team of people that used to go around doing you know uh, solving impossible missions and even to the point where like they um who was it was it uh, Pete, was it peter graves who was in mm, the yeah. original so i didn't realize this but um uh john voigt is playing the same character oh. as peter graves and they offered Peter Graves the main villain role to link it to the series, which I think would have cleared up a lot of things. Yeah. Right? It would have sort of like connected it. But um, so they offered Peter Graves like the lead in it. And he said, there's no way I want to be the bad guy. Spoiler alert. So, um, <laughs> so then they got John Voight. But I found it really weird that they gave him the same character name and there was like connected tissue to the... Either... Because... Because then what happens is the entire team get killed off, including poor, poor little Emilio Estevez, one of his last big screen outings. Um, spike through the head. Yes. Oof. I remember oh, when that came out as well in Empire, thinking, oh, Emilio Estevez has done well. He's in this new Mission Impossible film. And I, I think he's like second lead in the credits, isn't he? They're all quite high up at the start. 
to be a bit of a surprise at what happens. But, yeah. uh, it was unforgivable. But when uh, they made that Sylvester Stallone movie, Bullet to the Head, uh, yeah. what was that? that was Walter Hill, and he directed yeah. that um, Sylvester Stallone, Jason Momoa, Bullet to the Head thing, and Christian Slater's in it. And Christian Slater, you go, oh, good, Christian Slater's... You're watching the trailer. Christian Slater's in a Stallone movie. Good for Christian. Oh, he's been shot in the head in the trailer. In the trailer. <laughs> you go, is that Christian Slater that's just been shot in the head in the trailer? Oh, wow. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. But, um, yeah, I just thought it was... Um, so, so Mission Impossible is such sort of like a... Uh, it takes a lot of liberties with the series to basically take a series and refashion it into a Tom Cruise vehicle. Yeah, and they've sort of tried to introduce the team element with sort of like Simon Pegg and Bing Rames later on in the series, but really it's just lip service, I think, because it's. I just... think that's it, and I think the Palmer was involved in that because when I think he, I think he was involved in it in the early stages, and I know he initially developed the script that got thrown out, um, and the Robert Town one was brought in by Cruz, but I think the initial script that it was based on was all developed by the Palmer. And it was just that. It was just him going, right, it's Mission Impossible. It's a team film, but it can't be a team film. So in order to make this work and make it Tom Cruise vehicle, we need to get rid of the team in the first act. You know, that's the... So that was the Palmer's idea, I think. Barely the first act. It's sort of like the first five minutes. And you kind of like, go, oh, this is what we're doing. Uh, but it also feels like there was a lot cut out of the movie... Uh, in between the trailer and the film being released, there's sort of like the trailer sort of suggests that there's this huge romantic subplot that's going on, and then none of that's in the film. But when you compare the transition from Mission Impossible from series to show uh, to movie, and Man from Uncle from series to movie, Man from Uncle is is sort of like it's faithful to the series, yeah. whilst at the same time being like an an entirely appropriate update. And yet, still being like period specific, because obviously it's sort of got to be about the Cold War, because it's about an American and a Russian, which is weird, because the American plays the Russian and the English guy plays the American. It's, it's I mean, bonkers. I think the the studio is probably interested because The Untouchables was like a fifties TV show, wasn't it? So I guess it was uh, the only time oh. they were, were going. Let's have a t- let's have the guy who made this TV show into like this really successful good movie. And uh, let's get him to do Mission Impossible and make that into another, like, top movie. That must have been the thinking, I think. I watched this I watched this uh, online thing that was, like, historically fact-checked movies. And they did, like, uh, they did one on The Untouchables and they were, like, going through all of the historical inaccuracies between, you know, uh, what happened in history and actually, you know, what Elliot Ness was really like and then what the film was like. And you go, that's absolutely fine. But not once did they mention the fact that the Untouchables movie is based on the TV series The Untouchables. It's condensing an entire plot from it. You know, whatever the character of Elliot Ness was in the TV series is what they're going to do in the movie because it's an adaptation of a fucking series. Yeah. But they never mention that. They just like go, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And you go, well, it might be wrong, but I mean, it's what was the series like? You've not mentioned it. So mm. I would just say that is. Fake news. Well, uh, well said. Yeah. Yeah, really tearing up some of these YouTubers today, I am. That's what I'm in the mood for. Um, right, so Mission to Mars came out in 1999. 
I thought it was 1999, but it, it, all sources point to 2000. So I was like, all right, well, 2000. Maybe. Okay. Well, do you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm remembering reading about it before it came out. Probably. That's what I'm doing. Um, so Mr. Mars came out the same year as Red Planet, right? It did, yeah, yeah. So which one was Red Planet? Red Planet was Val Kilmer, and Mission to Mars was... Um, Gary Sinise, Tim Robbins, Don Cheadle, Jerry O'Connell. And, and Red Planet was Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore. Yeah, and Carrie-Anne Moss from The Matrix. And neither of them were hits, were they? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's like that classic Hollywood thing where they've made two films about the same thing and they've released them side by side, and one of them's a hit and one of them, one of them later on. Like when they did Armageddon and Deep Impact, and Armageddon was obviously a huge hit. But when I watch it, I just I can't even tell what's going on in it, and it's so long and bloated. Whereas. Um, Deep Impact, I think, is really emotional and I think it works really well as a draw. I watched that years later. And I was like, well, this is the better movie. But um, but there's always sort of like generally a winner. But I remember with the two Mars movies, they kind of like, neither of them did that well. Yeah, I think they were like, I think especially Mission to Mars, I think was a very overblown budget. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's not a great film. But the kind of set pieces and the special effects are really great. They really stand up. And again, it's it's like um, I was watching some of the extras on the DVD for it, and it was saying that it's all like, you know, um, they're going, oh, that's a model, this shot's a model. And in it, one of the guys says, uh, but it's a model, but it's actually been augmented with CGI. And the, the guy says, I should say that CGI stands for computer-generated imagery. And I went, wow. They're even having to tell you. In 2000, that's what it stands for. It's become such a part of the kind of vocabulary now. Because it's so weird. It's so Because when we went to see Robocop, there were those idiots sat behind us. Oh, yeah. there? And they were like going, oh, my God, this is proper 1980 CGI. Mm. And you go, no, it's stop motion. <laughs> CGI is such sort of like a term that people really, I guess people still don't entirely know what it means. They just think it means special effects. Whereas it means... I mean, obviously it means computer-generated imagery, but, like, it's stop-motion. Robocop's got stop... It's beautiful stop-motion as well in Robocop, except for the bit where his arms are all long at the end, but, you know... It's beautiful stop-motion. It shows that 20 years on, that still looks better than CGI, having model shots which have got little bits of CGI to do, like... It's like, yeah, we'll just remove some bits here rather than have everything on screen CGI. It's like... That looks better. It looks people, more... always, people always flag up um, Ed 209 as sort of bad, bad stop motion. They say, well, you can tell that's stop motion. And I just think he's a robot. It doesn't matter that he's jerky. I think that mm. it actually adds to it. And also, I really love, um, I love that you can see the, um, the uh, methodology behind how they made the actual shots do you know what i mean it's like you go yeah. oh um you know i don't think king kong you know they, they they famously people always say that you can see like the thumbprints on king kong when he's being and you go i think that adds to it mm. i think that you know because it looks it it looks fluid and incredible and it's like mind-boggling that anyone even worked out how to do that 
And I know that CGI is not like a click of a button. It takes hundreds of people, thousands of hours, and like so much money and imagination and creativity to make CGI. I understand that. But there's almost something that's, well, not almost something. There's something more impressive about the thought that it's one or two animators stood around for weeks on end just moving these things a little bit by you're a little watching, bit. You're watching a craft rather than watching like, so, rather than something someone's tapped into it. It's like when you see those very early like Wallace and Gromits and things, they're a bit more finessed now, but in those very early like 30 minute ones where, yeah, again, you can sort of see like fingerprints on them and it feels like you are like watching like craftsmanship of, of it's sort of nice to be reminded that there's, you know, Nick Parker or whoever has moved that little thing, tiny amounts incrementally, and it's taken him years to put this thing together. And I think it adds to that. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas bad CGI is bad CGI and, and it never, lo- and it never looks good. And then also, but then again, you can say the same thing about, uh, uh, blue screen and green screen. I watched Predator again the other day, and there's a bit when everything in Predator is great. There's a bit right at the beginning when they're just about to jump out the chopper, and it's just this green screen or blue. It's a blue. It would be a blue screen shot. There was this blue screen shot, and um, uh, and it doesn't take you out, but you just think that's awful. Couldn't they have just like hired? Couldn't they have moved like a helicopter into sort of like a garden center and just had like potted plants as the jungle? Do you know what I mean? It's like, there must have been an easier way to do it than... I mean, they were in the jungle. Yeah. So, I don't know. I just think... So, it doesn't drag you out of it, but, like, bad special effects are bad special effects. And so, you know... Um, I watched the thing about the um, the difference between uh, Jurassic Park and Jurassic World and how the aspect ratio was uh, different in uh, Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. It was mainly about like how people are in awe of the dinosaurs and how how we as an audience witness the the wonder of living dinosaurs through the eyes of the characters, right? And the aspects uh, I can't remember what the I can't remember what the aspect ratio is, but um, but basically for Jurassic World, the aspect ratio is much wider, yeah. So that when you want to um, put a dinosaur in the shot the people um there's there's less gap between the top and the bottom of the screen so the dinosaur let's just say it's uh brachiosaurus it's got a really long neck so it looks smaller in the middle of the shot because you're trying to get the entire dinosaur in mm-hmm. and then the people have to sort of like be bunched up closer to the camera at the, at the bottom whereas when you look at the original Jurassic Park the uh, aspect ratio is sort of like um, no. it's less wide. Yeah, mm. it's less. So, so it's a, it's it's a less wide shot. So basically, you can see the brachiosaurus more comfortably in the middle of the shot, and then the people are tiny right at the bottom, and it's just it's just like the people are absolutely tiny to the point where the, the you introduce the people walking into the shot. You know, Sam Neill and Nora Dern walk into the shop when they first see it. And then the camera pans. And then this brachiosaurus it almost takes up the entire shot. Whereas in Jurassic World, there's huge gaps either side of the screen. So the dinosaur just looks much smaller just by the aspect ratio. I just thought that's really interesting because people obviously think that widescreen 
the, the, you know, as, uh, as, as, as wide as you get is obviously better. But when you look at also stuff like that Christopher Nolan is doing, because he's doing stuff in IMAX, it's not, it's not about the width of the shot, it's about the size of the shot. Yes. So he's filling, he's, he's almost going back to f shooting in, in uh, square frames. Mm. You know, where he's just filling the shot with so much information. Anyway, I just thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. Anyway. No, no, I just think, I think that's true. I think that sounds like you've got to do it for what you're making. If it works better in that format, do it in that format. But otherwise, you know, pick, pick your side. That feels like something as well that Spielberg would be all over. Like, I just think it's one of those natural things that he'd be good at. It's a question that will come up. It'll come up quite early. It's like what aspect ratio are we shooting in, and then it'll be, and they'll be, and it won't just be kind of like. I think now it's kind of like supply and demand. All of these screens, they're capable of. of and I used to think that you know, the wider the screen, the better the film. You know, mm. I remember seeing True Lies at the cinema and having to actually turn my head to read the credits because mm. we were like sat so near the front, and um, and uh, still a good film, but um, but. Yeah, I just think that it's not actually about that. It's about what best... Well, you know, when you see something like um, The Lighthouse. Was it The Lighthouse? Yeah, yeah. That was that was basically just... Uh, and what was the Grand Budapest Hotel used three different aspect ratios to show the different time periods that it was filmed in. Um, I just, yeah, so I think that people thought about it a lot more. And then when people do think about it today, it's almost like a talking point with the film. Yes. But now it's sort of like, it's kind of like a studio mandate, which is, right, we're filming in IMAX. We're filming in, you know, uh, Panavision. No one films in Panavision anymore. <laughs> uh, I just, yeah. Um, anyway, tell me about Mission to Mars. Well, it was originally like a Gore Verbinski film that he abandoned, and so the studio kind of needed a director for it. And so the Did studio called up... Gore Verbinski from Mouse Hunt. From Mouse Hunt, it would have been at the time, before yeah. He, before he did Pirates of the Caribbean and after he did Mouse Hunt. Yeah. Right. So he was going to do Mission to Mars. He pulled out, I think, last minute in the studio, a desperate final director. And at the time, post uh, uh, Mission Impossible, and presumably post Snake Eyes, he still had quite a bit of cachet. De Palma, they asked De Palma if he'd do it. And he was reluctant to do it, but did it as a favour which I think for his mind is probably like a misstep in hindsight because it's, he should have, at the point he was riding high, shouldn't have just done another favour for the studio. He should have done, kept doing his own films for as long as possible. But I think he thought, oh, it's another, probably another tapped on hit. But I think he entered it too late and it didn't really do, do him any favours in the end. So fair it, it would have been a payday for him. Mm. which goes back to the John Lydon thing, isn't it? Which is sort of like you do something for the money and then you can take a risk later on. I think if you have like three flops in a row, then you're kind of like dead in Hollywood. Yeah. But if you can kind of like have a hit and then a flop and then, like you say, do another studio thing. So what were you saying there was the flop before... Um, what, what gave him cachet, actually, before... Things like the Untouchables... Um... Allowed him to do Casualties of War, I think, was it, that came straight after? And in the, what was the early ones? I know that 
um, what was before? There was something before Blowout, I think, as well. Or I think for a while, actually, he was having hit after hit. And then Blowout was his first one that really tanked, I think. When was Kerry? Because Kerry was fucking huge, wasn't it? Yeah, that's 77. So that, um, when Blowout was 80, so, but he was just knocking them out back then. Mm. But they were low-budget indie films, you know, well, it felt like they were. And then when he did um, Carrie, it was just sort of like, now he's in the same league as Spielberg. You know? Yeah, he was, I think, at that time. Um, and then he did Scarface. Was Scarface a hit? Oh, yeah, massive, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, that De Palma documentary is incredible. It really is, and it is just a setup of... Oh, Carrie was 76, apparently. Um, uh, yeah, and it is, it's just him talking. It's a camera set up on him, telling him about... Well, Carrie's 76, because uh, fucking Brian De Palma and George Lucas shared the casting sessions, didn't they? So yes. they were like... They, they had one office, and um, half the cast ended up being in Carrie, and the other half of the cast ended up being in Star Wars. Yeah. So it makes sense because there'd have been less special effects for Carrie to be 76. But um, that's how you do it back at home, guys. If you compare it up with another film that was made around the same time, then you can work out what the, you know, it's not a magic trick. I mean, just using logic, you know, you go, right. So George Lucas and Brian De Palma, they shared a casting session with uh, Carrie and Star Wars. So Carrie probably would have had less special effects. That's 76. And Star Wars was famously 1977, and that's how, that's how you work it out. And then when people get confused about when Star Trek came out, you go, oh, Star Trek clearly came out two years after Star Wars, because that's how much time, was it two years? Was it 79? 79, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same year as Alien, obviously, and uh, Moonraker, you know, because these films were all sort of like Star Wars influenced, you know. But um, exactly. the other, so the other thing... Me and Nat talk about Brian De Palma all the time, and if you're kind of like trying to get into Brian De Palma, I think, I'm not even sure if it's the best place to start. I would say start with something like Blowout, Untouchables, Mission, uh, Mission Impossible is kind of like a mainstream Brian De Palma film. And then I would, uh, Phantom of the Paradise is, uh, is a weird film, but it's a good film. And then I've watched a documentary and then I just fill up all the gaps because I just think that he is just, I think he's just absolutely, he's an incredible director. And the things that get me most excited are like the 70s, early 80s stuff that he did. Or Untouchables, which was sort of like late, mid late 80s. But those films are just all brilliant. They're like a continuation of Hitchcock, you know, really good. There's a, there's a lot of that in it. I suppose that's probably what, um, again, was the idea in Mission Impossible, to kill off the team at the start. For him, was probably like, well, that's the ultimate sort of psycho move, to have all these other, every other character, including, you know, Kristen Scott Thomas, uh, Emilio Estevez, and basically the team that, that have been advertised as being the sort of second and third leads, have everyone else killed off, act one. That's the psycho manoeuvre, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what we call it as well. We call it the psycho manoeuvre. <laughs> it's like the Holdo manoeuvre from The Last Jedi. People say, you can't do that. And they did. And then the whole universe falls apart. Anyway, Mission to Mars. How much would you give it out of uh, uh, 11 pounds? <laughs> give it uh, £6.50. Oh, so it's not bad. 
It's not bad. It's just very, like, the dialogue's really corny. It's, like, sort of really, like, it almost, when you're watching it, it feels like you're going to watch a much worse film than it is. It's trying to do, like, a 2001 in a very mainstreamy 2000 for, like, yeah, very mainstreamy 2001, sort of a bit metaphysical, but not clever enough. Um... But it's all right. It's, it's got quite a classy cast. And as I say, the set pieces are great. And all the, um, and the special effects are really good, like really impressive. And it's set today on June the 10th. It's set on it June the 9th. The first, the first bit is then the rest of it's set a couple of years later. Domino is set June the 10th. And, okay, well, that's free. Did you watch it because of this? Uh, I was, yeah, I was watching. I thought, oh, I'll watch Mission to Mars. It's set. Oh, that's set now. And I think you'd said the other week that Domino was set about now. Yeah. So I just, I was going, when's that set? And I looked it up and it's like, oh, it's set the day after. What a weird, weird, weird coincidence. It's, that is weird. It's probably un- uh, unintentional. Yeah. And in no bits of they... Is it? Because Domino was filmed last year or maybe 2018. It's, it's like, why would you set something? Why don't you just set it present day rather than one year in the future? No idea. But how slowly it takes for films to get released and to spread around. And we've got to play a song, but it's weird. Um, <laughs> uh, right, um, join us again after this track. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Um, I, I, okay, so I had an interesting experience this week where um, um, I was... So what I've been doing is um, I occasionally I'll watch, like, a film with someone over the internet where I'll, like, uh, WhatsApp them uh, do a video call on WhatsApp, and then I've moved my because uh, I still my Sky still isn't. I mean, it's been this, since December. What's that? Seven months I haven't had Sky. You I can basically, can basically say I'm not a Sky customer anymore, right? <laughs> so, just please, just someone. If anyone is listening, please. The internet stopped working in my bedroom, <laughs> and that sounds like. Um, uh, a, a masturbation problem, but it's not. It's it's. I just like watching YouTube in bed and fucking hell. I, I, I my my the technology in my house is slowly just sort of like making my life miserable. Like bit by bit, it's shutting down. So I moved my desktop into my living room so that I could watch um, uh, uh, films on sort of like a fairly normal size screen. And so uh, I've got Netflix on my uh, desktop. So, um, and the other day I was uh, talking to a friend and we were looking for something to watch on Netflix, but it takes ages to find anything. And then all of a sudden Terminator came up and they were like, I've not seen Terminator. And I was like, you've not seen Terminator? And I was like, okay, well, shall we watch Terminator? So we watched Terminator. And in my head, and in my head, I've always thought um, Terminator is. I, I think I've always sort of slightly preferred it to Terminator Two, and I don't know why that is. <coughs> but um, I watched it. We watched it, 
and like about uh, 10 minutes in, they were like, hang on a minute, is Arnold Schwarzenegger the bad guy? And I was like, yeah, he's the Terminator. In Terminator, he's a bad guy. And their mind was sort of like blown. They were like, oh, God. And I said, have you seen Terminator 2? And they were like, no, I've not seen Terminator 2. I said, do you know anything about Terminator 2? They said, I don't know anything about the Terminator films. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. This is absolutely mind-blowing to me, right? So we watched Terminator. Terminator is sort of like a slasher movie that is framed with sort of like a cyberpunk kind of aesthetic where there's an unstoppable killer like Jason or Michael Myers and he's hunting down uh, this woman and, and, and all these other women called Sarah Connor are also getting murdered. And it just becomes like, it's just basically, it's a chase movie, right? Um, and it's and it's good, it's a thriller. Uh, and for what it is, it's kind of like, it holds up pretty well as sort of a thriller. But um, then we watched Terminator 2. And um, I basically, just this, this, uh, it's, it's difficult to know what to do with the Terminator franchise in terms of introducing it to someone, right? Because Terminator 2, famously, well, famously with all the Terminator movies, there's always sort of like a major plot twist in all the Terminator movies, but uh, it always gets spoiled in the first trailer for every single Terminator film, right? So in Terminator Genesis, John Connor's in it, but they reveal in the trailer that John Connor is a Terminator now, right? And in Terminator Salvation, it was like, oh, Sam Worthington's in it. But they reveal in the trailer that Sam Worthington is a Terminator, right? And it's kind of like, it's, it, there's, there's like very little, and I'm, I was just going to assume that everyone has seen Terminator 2. But the thrill of watching Terminator 2 with someone that doesn't know that Arnold Schwarzenegger is the good guy, because they gave it away in the trailer, right? So you're watching it, they've watched Terminator, they go, right, Arnie's a bad guy. There's the bit when they go to the Galleria shopping centre, not the one in Hatfield, but the one in Los Angeles. <laughs> and they go to the Galleria shopping centre. He's got a bunch of flowers. With a bunch of flowers, guns and roses. And um, he, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's hunting down John Connor, T-1000 is hunting down John Connor, and then they, they're like in a back corridor and they both confront each other. And at that point, you don't know who is who. One of them's a police officer, and one of them's Arnold Schwarzenegger, the bad guy from the first film. And they get their guns out, and John Connor's in the middle, and you think, oh my, they play it like it's a twist, right? But the marketing just completely just threw all that out the window and was just like, nah, it's not real. It's 40 minutes into the film or something where you don't know who the good guy is. Uh, and there's, essentially there's two guys that are hunting this kid. And um, and they play it like it's a twist, but none of the marketing supported that. So I'm watching it with this, with, with this friend, and they're, they're watching it, and their mind is absolutely fucking blown. And it's just, it, it was sort of like, oh, it was j just as much of a thrill watching their face as it was watching them. And then you get to the end of the film and you go, there's no comparison. Terminator 2, um, I would say my favourite Arnold Schwarzenegger film is Predator. And I've always sort of like thought that Terminator 2 is probably a little bit too long and a little bit too uh, worthy. On the one side, they're saying all oh, violence is bad. And on the other side, they're just blowing <laughs> stuff up. 
it's like they're having their cake, cake and eating it a bit. So it's a bit hypocritical, but um, I think the message is really good. But also, um, I just think, yeah, I haven't seen it in such a long time all the way through. It's, I was crying at the end. I was crying all the way through it. I was just like, it was such a, it's such a stunning film. But now we're in the quandary of what you watch next. Do you watch Terminator 3 and T Terminator Salvation? And then Terminator Gener Genesis sort of ignores Terminator 3 and Terminator Salvation. So then do you skip to Terminator Genesis instead of Terminator 3 and Terminator 4? Or do you skip right to Terminator... Uh, uh, what's the last one called? Who knows anymore? So Dark Fate? Dark Fate. Terminator. I haven't seen Dark Fate. It, I mean, I thought it looked... Yeah. And also, I, they leaked the plot twist for that, and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I really want to watch that. But... It's essentially, it's Terminator. So they've made like three Terminator 3s. Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, Terminator Genesis, and Terminator Dark Fate all act as Terminator 3s. And this last one was the one where James Cameron comes back and it's kind of like, no, this is the definitive. He didn't direct it. He sort of like was part of the story, but um, is it Tim Miller that did Deadpool? He came back, he came yeah. on board and did it. And, um... And it's quite funny because Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds was basically fell out with Tim Miller and Tim Miller uh, wanted to take Deadpool 2 in a different direction and then Ryan Reynolds didn't agree, so Tim Miller left and he went on to do Terminator. Ryan Reynolds made some sort of a joke about, like, oh, what's, what, what was he going to do with Deadpool 2? Do another action sequence on a bridge? And then the trailer for Terminator Dark Fate was this huge action sequence on a bridge and basically that sort of Tim Miller's ace up his sleeve is, I'll just set, a, I'll set it on a bridge and then we'll do... Because you can't really get off a bridge, can you? I think that's maybe the thinking. But I haven't seen it yet, so it would kind of like be like a first time for me and a first time for them. But it's sort of like this weird... What? Yeah, so I'm basically throwing that out there. I don't know, I, do you know what? I've only ever seen... Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, and that is the last Terminator film I saw. I haven't seen oh, any of the others. Yeah. And I did like, I, I, I quite like Terminator 3, but it feels like it's, you know, it feels already like uh, you, you're on a sliding scale then. And after that, I was quite happy, and I, was, I thought, well, that seems to wrap things up fine. As does the second one. I don't think you need to see any more after two. I think you could go, that's the end. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's possibly it. I think that because uh, um, they're just, and in a way, the first film kind of you, you sort of don't even need the first film. You can just sort of watch the second film and go because the second film builds so much on the first film in terms of taking everything to the next level that they don't really flow that well together because there's sort of inconsistencies. So you just like go, well, like Terminator 2 has most of the iconic stuff. Terminator 1 has got some really cool kind of like early 80s horror, sci-fi, action, uh, some really great stop motion, special effects. You know, there's, you know, it's got some stuff in it, but basically everything comes together, looks incredible in Terminator 2. Arnold Schwarzenegger's look in it is sort of like established right from the beginning and you go, right, right, okay, this is... Oh, yeah, like, like Terminator... 
versus Terminator 2. Terminator is also like a low-budget movie, really, versus mm. Terminator 2, which is a massive budget movie. The biggest budget film of its time. At the mm. time. I think it was 100 million or maybe 120 million. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, and then Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Um, some people stand by it, but their only argument seems to be it's got a good ending. Yeah, it's got a good ending. It looks like a pilot for the Terminator TV, like a sci-fi channel Terminator TV series. It looks so cheap, um, and it wasn't. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger's last film before he became governor. And so, um, dollars, right? He can, he can, he can. Yeah, he can work out whether he should do it. And then he said to James Cameron, "Should I?" Because James Cameron wasn't involved by that point. He said, "Should I do it?" And James Cameron just said, "Just take the money." Ask for as much as possible and then take the money in and do it. So he got 30 million for it. And then he was governor. Um, and it was sort of like his last probably huge hit. Mm. Um, but um, I think it's awful. It's unwatchable. It's like a parody movie. And then uh, Terminator Salvation I thought was okay. But like as soon as you leave, you start like questioning everything. Like they've got, you know, we've talked about it before, but they've got these 50 foot tall robots that have got arms and legs and heads. And you go, why? The Terminator is an infiltration unit that's meant to look like a human. It's a, you know, six foot tall. It looks like it's got a skeleton and then it's got like um, human flesh on the outside. It's meant to look like a human so that it can infiltrate. Why have you built a robot with arms and legs and a head that's 50 foot tall that shoots motorbikes out of its wrists. Why have they got motorbikes? They can fly. Like, like you know, you watch it and you go, that's sort of okay. And then afterwards it just all falls apart. Um, and then Terminator Genesis is just kind of, I kind of like the idea they tried to do a Back to the Future 2 where, oh, we'll set the sequel within the first movie. But um, the guy, Jay, Jai Courtney, doesn't look anything like Michael Bean. And then it's just kind of like, it's like they've really picked and chosen what they're going to stick with and what they're not going to stick with. And they just don't, they just don't flow. And anyway, it's just rubbish. I know it's rubbish, but dark fate. I'm really not. I think that you probably don't ever need to watch another one, but it's fuck. It was fuck. It was, I'm just saying it was a special moment watching it through the eyes of basically someone that has lived in a nuclear bunker. Ironically, <laughs> someone from the nuclear bunker at the end of Terminator 3 has never seen any of the Terminator movies and is now watching them for the first time. There you go. I just um, want to say as well that um, before when you were talking about, you know, that's how you work out what year films came out of, I think that's a good message, Nick, because I'm sure there's lots of people that listen to this that we're sort of big heroes to them and they probably think us being able to name the year films that came out 30 40 years ago is like a sort of superpower but i think you explaining that and explaining how we do it in our heads and how we work it out just lets them know that we're just human too we're just real people and we're, we're just human we're just human you know yeah. terminator same year as ghostbusters a year before back to the future 1984 terminator 2 the year after total recall 1991 terminator 3 rise of the machines just after university, 2003. Uh, Terminator Salvation. 
2007, 2008. I was doing Perfect Movie, uh, and then um, fucking Terminator Dark Fate, 2019. When was Genesis? Who gives a fuck? Right. So, Burn Mail. Um, play that funky music, white boy. Hi. I think I've fallen in love during lockdown. I've fallen in love with your show and your husky synths voices. I would like them as an alarm clock. I find you both super delicious. What is your alarm clock? Do you like the films of Ronald Reagan? Chubba Chub, dear Nick. And oh, right, Chubba Chub. That's Chubba Chub. Uh, what's it? Like the films of Ronald Reagan? Uh, what's it? Bedtime for Bonzo. Who doesn't like Bedtime for Bonzo? A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, uh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> they made westerns, didn't they? I don't know. Um, what's my alarm clock? My alarm clock is uh, the most stressful... Uh, so I think it's sonar or something like that that you get on Apple. And it's fucking... It's that. And then randomly I've got touch too much from ACDC, which really sort of like kicks in very loud and hard, which is also terrifying. And then I also have... Um, uh, uh, what's it? It's one of the songs off of High Fidelity. Um, Won't somebody please help me with my misery? That song. Sad. So I just wake up. If I wake up, I'm either waking up scared, angry, or sad. Um, I should change them. Uh, <laughs> have you got an alarm clock, Matt? I just have the one that comes with Apple. I used to have one that was like a sort of one that was meant to wake up really calmly. And I just got rid of it. It just has exactly the same effect, where it was like sort of almost like kind of little kind of like almost like wind chimey kind of sound. But then that just ends up having exactly the same effect because you just associate the alarm clock with having to get up. So after a day or two, that even that sound is like, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Off, off. I'm tending not to use an alarm clock uh, in lockdown. Uh, I wake up at 6pm uh, scared, annoyed and angry with myself and, the, <laughs> and who needs that's what an alarm clock does for me so all I can do is just sort of like waste waste days Dear Nick and Matt, I hope you are safe and well, I really need your opinion on this, do you think that forcing my boyfriend to watch Downton Abbey makes me a terrible girlfriend? Let me know what you think, Amy, never seen it I've never seen it, I was up for watching the film on a boat once but apart from that no. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I've heard it's a quite kind of, um, it's a bit like upstairs, downstairs, but a bit more like, a bit more pro the rich people. So I'm not, I'm not really, not really what's, that, what's that Robert Altman film? Yeah, that's, what's that called? Um, oh, it's got a really similar title as well, isn't it? Um, ah, oh, wow. Gosford Park. Um, Gosford hey, Gosford Park! Park. Um, yeah, I would just watch Gosford Park, and if he doesn't like that, then don't subject him to the TV series. Although yeah, Gosford, Gosford Park, Park is the same writer as well, isn't it? But it's a good film, Gosford Park. Yeah, but wasn't Gosford Park improvised? Maybe. It's Robert Altman, isn't it? Yeah, it probably was. That's his thing. Hi, boys, just letting you know that I had a dream about Nick Helm the other night. He was a lead singer in a circa 2005 indie rock band. Got into trouble for starting a mosh pit as a Princess Diana memorial gig, Gavin Slow. That's a weird dream. Something I would never do. Hi, lads. Snog, Mary, Void, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck or Goofy? Jethro. 
Um, who would you snog? Who would you marry? Who would you avoid? Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, or Goofy? Mm. Tempted to I'd say probably I'd avoid Mickey Mouse. No, I wouldn't. No, hangy. No, it's hard, isn't it? I think that you would like Goofy. Yeah, I think you'd like him. I think that um, that after a while he would just keep knocking over pints of water all over yeah. the living floor, and you'd just be like, and, and you'd just be. I just can't be doing with it. I can't be doing... No. So I would probably avoid Goofy. Um, I'd probably kiss Donald. I'd probably get off... I've never got off with, like, a, a, a cartoon character, but I have once got off with a duck, and that was nice. So maybe... And I've fucked a mouse. So maybe I would marry Mickey. I would uh, get off with Donald Duck... Uh, but I'd probably avoid Goofy because I might fall in love with him, but at the end of the day, I think he would just be frustrating. I think, How about that, that? I think that, weirdly, I think that's the right answer. I think that's the correct answer. Um, Hi, lads! I watched the Super Mario Bros. movie the other day. It's awful! Who would you cast as Mario and Luigi if you were making it today? I would cast Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo, but John Leguizamo as Mario... And Bob Hoskins as Luigi. I remember once going to see... Like, I went to see that at the Barking Odeon when it came out. And we got there... There was a little bit... Barking! (laughs) Barking man. There was a bit of a queue to get in, and as we were queuing up, like, well, it's quite popular, Super Mario Brothers. And I was like, yeah, I'm surprised, really. I I sort of thought... I kind of think the film would be rubbish. And my mate said to me, I think it's going to be rubbish as well. Shall we not go? And we went... Yeah, let's not go. I mean, I've never seen it. Never seen it. Uh, I saw it. I saw it in cinema. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. <laughs> but it's the first of its kind, isn't it? But like Bob Hoskins famously, right up until the end of his days, was saying there's one fucking film that he hates, and it's Super Mario Brothers. Who would you <laughs> cast as Mario? Would you try and get someone... You could get, like, Danny DeVito. Or uh, someone like Danny McBride? Danny McBride? Well, maybe Danny McBride would be quite good, but he's not Italian, is he? No. But what was the first person he said? Ian McKellen? <laughs> no, that'd be good. I'd get Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart to be... Well, yeah, I'd work to that. Oh, 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 oh you sound like a, a gaggle of schoolgirls. Well, that's the problem. There's a giant turd blocking up your toilets. Um, <laughs> make it flush. Yeah, because they're plumbers. And then they're that going would be good. That would be good. Uh, here's the last one. Uh, Hi, Nick and Nate. Love the show. I really fancy a bacon cheeseburger. Should I have one? They do tend to give me a run. Oh, come on. But I could just sit on the commode all day tomorrow. Best Meryl. Um... Uh, you know, fill your boots. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks for the fan mail this week. It makes us feel real special to know that so many out there are appreciating the content and the show that we're putting out uh, during lockdown. Uh, let's play a song and then we'll get... Danny Tukey would be good. He would be and good. Our, and our guest is waiting in the waiting room. Okay, so let's play a song and then um, uh, talk to our guest. Yes. Well, we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. 
Mike Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back in the studio with his, his, uh, me and Nathaniel Metcalf, and we're joined in the studio by a uh, poet, uh, producer, writer, TV writer. I mean, you've done... You've done Henry Normal, we're joined in the studio by uh, li- living legend Henry Normal. Usually, by the time somebody's introduced me, I'm sick of myself. Yeah, but well, prepare to get sick of yourself then, I suppose. Um, thank you for coming on to our show. How are you doing? You all right? All right, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, not been out for a few months, but apart from that, you know, all right. Have you not been out at all? Not really, no. No, yeah, just around the block, you know, doing a bit of a walk. Uh, that's all right. That, that's it, yeah, you know. Um, where, where is there to go? Do you live near the beach? I do, yeah, yeah. So uh, um, I, I can't turn you around at the minute, but basically, if you're around the other way, you'd see the sea. So we we, we overlook the sea. Uh, so I, we, uh, me and my lad, you know, my lad's autistic, so he's about 22. We we go a walk uh, um, round uh, just by the beach and, and come back up, and that's it. That's that's our little. Talk. You're in Brighton. Yeah, Brighton. Lovely, lovely. Because you used to be uh, the head of uh, Baby Cow. Yes. Uh, and- and then you retired to go back to uh, uh, gigging as a poet. Um, and so you, you must enjoy the sort of change of pace. I do enjoy the change of pace. I, I thought once we'd done the third series of Uncle, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd peaked. <laughs> so well, uh, there's little left for me to do. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do enjoy it, actually. The great thing, you'll know this, uh, when you do television, uh, um, you've got lots and lots of people. Uh, and so everything's being pulled this way and that. Uh, whereas if you create something and it's just you and you do a live show or you do a Zoom like this, um, you know, there's less people. So it's a sort of a purer bit of art form, isn't it? Yeah. Although, I don't think of this as art. I would hate people to judge me. Uh, I'd hate people to judge my life based on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but the great thing, actually, I've seen you live and I know when you're standing up there live, it's just you, and 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 you're saying with you, uh, Nathaniel. Uh, it's just you and the audience, and what you say is nobody is telling you to say this or say that. It's just you and the audience. So it's as pure as you can get. You take a film like Philomena. So we had about three hundred people working on Philomena. So uh, when you look at the the art department and you look at the costumes department, everybody's just changing the image in your head slightly, so that by the time you've actually made the thing. Um, it's not the image that was in the writer's head, shall we say. Uh, um, uh, whereas I, I think something like this is brilliant. You know, I mean, this is just us, isn't it? Just three blokes talking. I can, see, I can see the point, but Philomena was also a very good film. It'd be a better example if it was a, if it was a real pudding. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it, it made over 150 million, which is probably more than most Zooms, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, a little bit of uh, context was, yeah. um, so I was um, I was doing a show called, uh, well, I basically, well, me and Nat, we grew up watching uh, Steve Coogan on uh, TV, and um, I'll go into some of that stuff later, but basically um, one of the all-time greatest DVD extras on anything like film anything that i've ever had one of the ones that i always go back to is uh the writing room um 
uh, DVD extra that you did for Cheese and Ham, uh, Paul and Pauline. Oh Cuff. yeah, that was great. Yeah. So, so I, no, not many people mention that, uh, Nick. To be honest with you, uh, you know, it, it's not up there with the. But I, thank you. I, I enjoyed that. So cheese and cheese and ham sandwich was uh, basically Steve had done live and lewd, and he'd done the man who thinks he's it. Yeah, uh, the tall the both tall, Yeah, it. the man who thinks he's it. I think is uh, which you which you co-wrote, right? Uh, that's right. No, uh, Peter Bainham, myself, uh, Steve, and of course we, the um, there was Simon Pegg and Julia Davis were uh, uh, were on the show and wrote, they wrote their bits. So the man who thinks he's it, if people haven't seen it, you should see it. It's one of the, I think at the time, one of the all-time best live uh, DVD videos that I ever owned. And I watched it maybe 30 times to the point that um, I would find lines from it going into my stand-up while I was on stage. I go, don't say that! That's from, that's from the man who thinks he's it. Um, and it was so it was sort of like a variety show where Steve would bring out all of his characters. He did like Paul, Pauline, Tony Farino, Duncan Thicket, who's probably one of my favourite characters, and yeah. uh, Alan Partridge. Uh, and then when BBC Three launched as a channel, you did a sort of um, uh, half hour special uh, where Steve did uh, Pauline Calf and then Paul Calf, and then in between he was compared on and off by Duncan Thicket. That's right. Uh, yeah. Duncan Thicket is the worst stand-up comedian on the planet. Duncan Thicket was, um, uh, was Steve's first character. So right. when I met Steve when he was 19, that was the only character he had. So he would do um, all the uh, usual impressions uh, that impressionists do. Uh, um, and was quite mainstream. But the one thing that he did that was beyond mainstream was Duncan Thicket. So when I met him, uh, um, he asked me to write with him, and we wrote uh, a pilot, which has never been on, for Duncan Thicket, about Duncan Thicket being uh, a bus conductor. Uh, um, but they, they'd thrown him off the bus conducting, and it was called Empty Up Top. <laughs> <laughs> did you film it? No, no, we, we wrote it. And do you know what? We had such a time writing it. Because basically, uh, what we did, we'd do, we'd, uh, Steve would come over to my house and he'd come in his Porsche and he'd bring uh, some milk. So I had the fastest milkman uh, in, in Manchester. Uh, and, uh, and we'd sit down and we would just think, how, what can we do to, to basically make this person's life a misery? Uh, and we would howl a laughing at the, the sort of the awful things that we would do to, to the character. Um, and it's still one of my favourite scripts, but it's never been made. I also think if you're if you're Steve Coogan and you're you're sort of uh, branching out and trying to do sort of new form character stand up, that if your first character is the worst stand up in the world, <laughs> it's like bulletproof, <laughs> bulletproof because you can almost go out there and be terrible, but also you've got that um, you've got that shield between you and the audience of. Yeah. And, and, and he, he lasted quite a long time, actually, because he's been on, as you say, several uh, incarnations. And um, we used to love trying to think what was the modern uh, thing that was happening in comedy. And then we would get him to do it wrong. Uh, yeah. And, and so, like uh, self-deprecating comedy. Sorry? A lot of, like self-deprecating comedy. A lot of comedians are into self-deprecation. <laughs> I'm a right, couldn't me? <laughs> you no, know, I love the fact you remember that because that's one of my gags. So, uh, uh, so always good. 
And then he goes, and that's something everyone can relate to. Well, he can. And then he pointed, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, but then, so, so when BBC Three launched, she did sort of like a half-hour special, and I bought it on DVD. And, that, and, and that was actually the first show on BBC Three. That's what I thought it was, yeah. yeah. And um, so I bought it on DVD, and then on the on the extras of the DVD, there's sort of like a making of documentary. And when I started out writing comedy, I mean, I'd written a few um, Edinburgh shows uh, up to then, so I think I probably saw it in about 2000. For 2005, when I started writing uh, comedy, there's a DVD extra, which is basically you and Steve have hired out like a, a hall. Yeah. And uh, you're basically, um, Steve sat one side of the table with the camera facing him and you're, on the, you're behind the camera. Yeah. And you're sat at this table and you're just writing jokes together. And you're sort of like just improvising stuff out loud. And it's sort of like this real back and forth between you. And you yeah. can see the jokes evolve as you're going and then you see the final show and you go that's the joke that they just came up with and mm. as a writer it was sort of like this um like this uh invaluable kind of like resource where you'd sort of like watch it and you go well that's how they did it so it can't it's you know it's not like it's sort of like demystified um the process yeah, I mean, I'm glad it did. yeah. Because, because uh, in a way, I mean, I had some of the greatest fun. So I, I worked with uh, Carolina Hearn uh, as well, and uh, Craig Cash and Dave Gorman, uh, as well as uh, um, Graham Duff and um, uh, and Steve. And uh, I've had such some of the best fun ever, just sat in a room thinking up jokes, uh, some of which nobody's ever heard because we thought of a funnier one. Uh, um, and so we didn't do the original. And uh, you probably noticed from that what, what I used to do is I used to think up a joke. Uh, and it'd be quite a short joke because it'd just be basically like a, you know a nub of a joke, uh, but it would be the the central sort of uh, uh, twist of it. And then Steve would elongate it uh, and uh, just give it a rhythm and make it bigger, uh, and so the the laugh was bigger. Uh, and I used to love that about him. I learned a lot from him uh, in terms of the way you uh, you you take the nub of a joke, but you you expand it and by giving it such weight uh, uh, when you actually get to, even if, thanks Ange, uh, uh, Ange just creeping in with my cup of tea. Uh, um, it, by giving it such weight, when you, when you get to the, the nub of it, 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 just, it just explodes and it makes it better. Um, Steve was always great for that. And um, very often we would write jokes where it would be a joke that neither of us had written because we, we couldn't have written it without the, the you know, the, maybe the seven backwards and forwards. Always, always in uh, the Mrs. Merton show when uh, we were writing, um, people would ask us who wrote a joke, especially uh, that one, uh, who, uh, what first attracted you to the millionaire, Paul Dan. <laughs> uh, um, and we could never remember because there's four of us in the room and, and you, you'd talk for about 10 minutes before you got to that joke. And so any, anybody's contribution could have, been, could have been in it. But it's sort of like um, capturing lightning and bottle. It's those. Yeah. It's like a perfect storm of people that are in the room that are creating that thing, and if you took an element out of it, you'd get a different result. You know. Yeah, I, 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 I loved it, and I love the pressure of it because I used to write for Caroline and Steve at the same time, uh, so I'd write nights and weekends and everything. And uh, you know, as a young man, uh, it was it was like a, 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 a sort of a, a fairground ride. I was just you know sort of uh, buzzing from it. And uh, I always remember Steve came, uh, we used to ride Saturday Zoo, so uh, Paul Calf 
um, was on Saturday Zoo for us. And he came in one day and said to us, um, uh, I'm going to write Pauline Calf. And I said, uh, who the hell's Pauline Calf? He says, well, it's Paul Calf's sister. I said, oh, right, well, uh, what, 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 you know, we've got, we got about two days to write this. I said, what, what do you know about her? And the only thing he'd come up with so far was, um, she says, dead sophisticated. So we started from that basis that, that, uh, that she was slightly uh, trying to be pretentious. You know, if you think about all the books that she wrote and stuff like that. But, you know, she was common as muck. But, um, so all of the Saturday Zoos are extras on the Cheese and Ham Sandwich DVD. So I just, because when he, so like, this is, this is a coincidence, right? So it seems like a setup, but I've got um, all right, yeah. a copy of uh, Paul's book for boys and Pauline's book for girls here. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could sign it for me. I'll tell you a funny story about that. So when we were writing that, uh, Steve was trying to do about three things at the same time. So I think if he was in a film and stuff like that. So I'd have to wake him up to write it. So he'd lie on my floor and he'd go to sleep and then I'd wake him up for a bit and then we'd write a bit and then he'd go back to sleep again. <laughs> uh, so whenever I see that, that's what I always remember him, him actually asleep on the floor. Do you feel like um, going back to like performance poetry, does that feel like a bit of a course correction? Do you feel like you were taken away from it into this big kind of media, showbiz, TV producing world? And does it feel like going back to it feels like, this is what I should have been doing all along? Well, you, can, you can't make any money from, from poetry. So, uh, you know, I've got a wife and a child, so you, you've got to pay the rent. Uh, um, so uh, most poets have another job. Um, and uh, luckily I had a job that paid well and was lots of fun. I got to work with loads of uh, great people. Um, but I, I, I do sometimes think if I'd have, because um, I'm a big friend of Lem Sisse, who, uh, who's oh, yeah. now a world poet. And I, I think if I'd have stuck at it, would I have got any prestige as a, as a poet? Um, I wouldn't have got any money, but, uh, you know, there, there's more to life than, than money. I, I think old Nick is a great poet uh, um, when, he, uh, when he wants to be. And I, I think there's something about poetry that that is over and above comedy and funnily enough uh, um, um, I talked to Steve recently and uh, uh, you notice that a lot of comedians as they get older they move more into drama and I, I think you're looking for something a bit more substantial now, now I love comedy to bits but it is a bit like sugar do you know what I mean uh, it's good to to make things you know uh, give things flavor and make them sweet and and uh, you know but to actually pull over a message and, and to have something substantial. You want to have something there. If, if you just eat sugar, it's mm. a bad diet. Uh, and so yeah. I, I, love, uh, I love comedy as a, as a, as a vehicle to, to say other things. And with, with poetry, you can do that. So, so that's great. Whether it be a, you know, a, a short ditty or whether it be a, 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 a huge uh, magnum opus. Well, I, th I think when, uh, I think you, it's easier to, having said that, some most of my favourite films are comedies. Yeah. But I think that when something is just, especially with stand-up, I think when something is just about jokes, if that is the style that you pick for your stand-up, then it's sort of like, um, 
it, it, not that it's disposable, but once you've heard the punchline, you sort of want new, you know, you, 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 you uh, what do you do? You ingest it, do you know what I mean? And so it's kind of like you just, you're on to the next laugh. But when you attach something that's more dramatic um, uh, to it, then uh, the, then it sort of like gives it a bit more weight and then the comedy is sort of like working counterbalance to it. I, I, I think so. I, I think it's some of my favourite films. So I've seen Midnight Run 33 times and I love that film and I love the big laughs in it and I, and I cry every time uh, his daughter uh, uh, offers him money at the car uh, um, because it's got the saddest scene and it's got the, some of the happiest scenes. And, and the, 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 the funny bits are funnier because the sad bits are so sad. Yeah. Well, so one of the first times... So I think what happened was, because I'd sort of like watched all of this stuff about, you know, the making of uh, cheese and ham sandwich and all that, and obviously you're in Live and Lude uh, at the beginning, and... So I was very aware of who you were. And I remember that I came out on stage in 2011 in Edinburgh and you were sat on the front row at the side. Yeah. And I literally was just like, oh, fucking hell, that's Henry Normal. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, I had to do the show knowing, that you, knowing, knowing who you were, that you were right there. And I was thinking, oh, no. And, um, and then Channel 4 um, basically said, uh, we want you to do these blaps. Who do you want to work with? And I was like, well, I want to work with Baby Cow. And I don't think you'd done loads of stuff with Channel 4 at that point. No, no, a, no. It was a bit of a weird thing. Um, but then after I'd done the blaps, I think me and Josh Widdicombe and Henry Packy came in for a meeting with you. And we were talking about what your favourite film was. And we said, well, I, I can't remember who asked. You said... My favourite film is Falling Down. Yeah. I've seen it 17 times. And yeah. I said, how do you know you've seen it 17 times? And he said, because every time I watch it, I take it out of the video player and I put it down and I go, that's 17. <laughs> <laughs> I just about to ask you the same thing about Midnight Run. Yeah, thinking... but, well, you know... Um... You, you've got to keep altering the number, otherwise, uh, you know, you're going to... Be... <laughs> but I, I just love those films. There's something... You know what? They've both got something in common, aren't they? Basically, they're both a, a damaged central character. Uh, and and uh, there's something uh, redemptive about uh, 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 those uh, uh, films that I, I don't know why. It's not like anything's ever happened in my life that, that's been so bad. But I, 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 think, I think there's a thing with all comedians. This, this is my theory, and I, every comedian I've ever come across has got, has, has got a version of this. So my mum died when I was 11, right? So I then became very withdrawn. And, and everybody that I've spoke to has got something that's happened in their childhood or in their teens or in their early 20s where they've stepped back from life, and instead of uh, being the centre of attention, they sort of try and work out how how it all works and and why it all works and you know when you see glastonbury and everybody jumping up and down in glastonbury no writers in jumping up and down they're, they're all at the side trying to work out why these people are jumping up and down and i i think there's the part of what we do creatively is is this trying to reconnect with that uh you know that that naive person that, that didn't want to work it all out and um, 
you know, I, I think in a way, uh, if you if you if you satisfy that, um, you probably won't create. So uh, luckily, we won't. I think this. Yeah, I think that I, I relate to that a lot. I think there is something like where you kind of you sort of step back in your teenagers and just watch other people and see how it's going. And I remember at school, I was never like the class clown, but but there was another kid who was. And sometimes I'd watch him and go, yeah, I thought of that as well. Before he'd say something, <laughs> yeah, I thought of that one. And I'd sort of go, and then I'd almost be thinking, you should have also said this. Yeah. That would have been funny. But you're yeah, just sort I, of watching I, it happen. Yeah, I was in class class i was quite withdrawn uh, um uh, but and, and, and i i met the first comedian i ever met i used to do a disco for old people when i when i was about uh, 16 i had a record player and my, my mate said to me can you come and do this old people's disco so because i had a record player so so uh, so we, we'd and and because they were so old we, we'd put some of the records uh, there were 45 on 33 so they could <laughs> dance to them and, and uh, at christmas they hired a, a comedian and this comedian came and uh, and he went off stage. He wasn't funny at all. And I remember looking at him, thinking, "Oh, you're going to die on that stage." And of course, <laughs> he was saving it all for when he went on the stage. And then when he went on the stage, I always remember his first joke because he got shorts on, and he was dressed like a kid, a bit like uh, Angus from um, uh, ACDC. Uh, and he went on stage and he said, uh, "He said, my mum uh, asked me what I want for Christmas, and I said uh, I want something to wear and something to play with." So she gave me these uh, shorts with an hole in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was over 40 odd years ago, I, I remember. But, but I met, what I, I really remember was the fact that he wasn't trying to be a pain in the arse off stage. He, he was just saving it and doing his thing on stage. And uh, I, I, most comedians I've come across, they're, they're, they're not, um, you know, uh, they're not trying to be funny all the time. If you go back to like the very early days then, so when were you, were you always a performance poet or were you writing before you'd ever kind of say it out loud? Uh, well, I used to write uh, bits at school uh, in the style of Monty Python. Uh, so I was a big Monty Python and then, then Spike Milligan. And then I read a book by Spike Milligan called uh, Small, Small Dreams of a Scorpion. And there was a particular poem in this uh, book uh, um, that made me cry. And I remember thinking, somebody that can make me laugh so much, and Spike Milligan, I used to have tears in my eyes when I, I'd read Spike Milligan, uh, um, and he can make me cry. And I thought, I love that. I love that he can do both. And so I, I was drawn into that idea of, of the, and it's quite a lovely composite form, the, the, the poem. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's when I got out. And then I, I saw um, uh, Roger McGough, uh, one lunchtime when I was about 19 uh, and uh, and he read uh, Summer with Monica which is basically uh, you know sort of a, a love poem and I thought you know I was trying to cop off at that time I thought that, that might be useful so I, I wrote a load of uh, love poems and then I saw uh, John Cooper Clark at the lead mill and uh, and uh, it was wearing sunglasses and it was in, inside uh, and I thought this man is cool this man is so cool. There's about 400 people in the lead mill. It was absolutely packed. And he was reading off a bit of paper. And I thought, well, I can read off a bit of paper. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, uh, so, so uh, I, I give it a go. I, I, got, I, think, I, I got, I think, 30 quid the first time I actually got paid. Uh, um, and I thought, well, this is better than working. I was an insurance broker at the time. This, this is per, per, per 10 minutes. This is better paid than working. 
So yeah. all you've got to do is, is, you know, get as many gigs as you can. Was that it? So where were you gigging in those early days? So you were uh, doing... First gig I ever did was in Nottingham, because I'm from Nottingham. Uh, it was a, a place called Spots Cabaret. You've got to remember, back then, there was no comedy clubs. Certainly in the north, there were no comedy clubs. Uh, I know uh, in, in London, um, alternative comedy was just about starting, but in the north, it wasn't. So you'd have to go to jazz clubs and uh, folk clubs. Um, and I, I was on with th things like, I remember once being on at the uh, Stockport Town Hall with Can Can Dancers. Uh, and so I was on with one way everything. I used to tour with uh, Pulp when I was in Chesterfield and uh, lots of the Chesterfield and Sheffield bands. So basically any, any platform. I remember with Linda Smith once, we went to this gig and uh, the, the actual stage was just a, um, uh, it was a mattress. And we had to stand on this mattress and the bloke who was on before us was reading Winnie the Pooh. And and so th that was the sort of thing that, you know, you know it, it, was, it was not professional as in the way that it is now. You, you, so you just just had to try and do as many as you could. And then, of course, um, eventually um, we heard about uh, Edinburgh and, um, you know, I took a show up to Edinburgh. Uh, I was in, in those days you used to do two people would do a show. So you do half an hour each. So uh, Steve's first uh, show up there was with uh, uh, another impressionist called Mike Ailey. And then the next year he went up with Frank Skinner. My, my first show was with uh, Atty Ridge from Red Dwarf, you'll probably remember. Uh, um, and uh, we did a, a great show at the assembly rooms. And I got spotted. I actually won, <laughs> don't tell many people this, I actually won the Daily Mail Young Comic. <laughs> <laughs> I have never told Steve that information. <laughs> in our relationship if i tell him that information I, I think they only had it one year i think after that you know um the uh, the perrier um decided to have a young comic award and then it was never, so i'm probably the only older uh, of that award um anyway you're, still, you're uh, still the daily mail young comic that's a pro uh, yes uh, uh, undefeated <laughs> <laughs> um so uh I, I was spotted by um uh, Joe Sargent from the John Blair uh, Film Company, uh, and she came to me and she said, uh, "He said um, we offered um, a, a television series to uh, John Egley, uh, and he don't want it. Uh, and because uh, I, I love John to bits, uh, um, but he, he sometimes you know he, he has he has his own way of doing things." And I, I said, "Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll do it. Yeah, it's great. Sounds sounds good. Uh, what is it?" Uh, and she said, uh, we don't know, what do you want to do? <laughs> so I said, well, let's do the Muppets. And I'll be Kermit. Uh, and uh, and she said, who else do you want? And I said, well, uh, Frank Skinner. Because uh, um, I, I, I tried to get all the Northern acts on, and they were all my mates. So I said, Frank Skinner could be like a gonzo uh, uh, sort of character. Uh, and then I wanted Linda Smith uh, to to play the, the Miss Piggy. Uh, uh, sort of role uh, and they said that she wasn't animated enough and they got Jenny Clear in and uh, Jenny Clear was brilliant uh, I just uh, I didn't know her uh, but she obviously once I, I got to know her she was absolutely brilliant and it was quite a cartoony sort of um, show but what I did was I got all my mates on so if you, if you have a look at that show there's Dave Gorman's on there uh, Steve did his first ever national character he played my brother who actually turned out to be Frank's brother conning me uh, um, and um, I, I, it was it was a great film. I think it was eight forty five minutes, which throwing in the deep end was quite quite a big thing. That was, was packet that, three, right? Three. Packet three. Three. 
Yeah. Uh, so you wore the pink jacket on that, didn't you? To my uh, regret, yeah. I, you see, I was quite cool before I went to. I had I got long, spiky ear, you know, sort of with shaved at the side black, uh, and um, they sort of said, "Can you cut your ear?" And I didn't know any better at the time, and I cut my ear, and they put me this pink jacket. They put me the pink jacket because it was red drapes, and they thought it'd look good. But I, I, I looked nothing like who I was, and I felt. And the, the thing about uh, that was as well was. They wanted the short, funny bits, and uh, if, I, if ever you see me live, you'll notice I do some short, funny bits, I do some long, funny bits, I do some uh, serious bits, and uh, and then mix it all up. But I could only do a little bit, so I made a vow after that. Whenever I work with people, and uh, I'm sure uh, Nick will uh, bear me out on this, that I wanted to make people express themselves rather than the production trap them into uh, uh, something because i learned that lesson and and yeah. for me that was that i felt that was the end of my career because that wasn't my personality that, that was up there uh, it was a little bit of my personality that was uh, one of the that was one of the first bits of advice you gave me you went into your office and you said never let anyone dress you in a way that you don't feel comfortable yeah and then you told me about the pink jacket and i was like all right all right, Henry, I'll never, I'll never <laughs> let anyone dress me in a pink jacket. That's fine. And, and, and you dress yourself in a way that's uncomfortable. <laughs> I undress myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Please. Yeah. But, but there is, it is all about expression, though, isn't it? Yeah. So essentially, you want to express. So what I did after that show was um, I, 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 I got a lot of money from it, as you do from television. Um, so I started the Manchester Poetry Festival. Basically, the money I got, I spent it on the poetry festival and I put all my favorite people, uh, all poets uh, on that. And it's still going now. So that was 25 years ago. Uh, and it's now an international literature festival. So I always think something good came out of that series because it launched a few people. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we got a poetry festival out of it. Yeah. You did do the follow up series, did you? No, no, I got sacked from it, uh, which was strange because it was actually called uh, um, Normal Services originally. Uh, uh, but the, you see, I learned a lesson there. Always, uh, always, um, you know, when you make the format, always make sure you, you've got some signature on that because uh, um, I hadn't. Uh, so they could do it without me. Um, yeah. But uh, do you know what? Uh, I'm glad uh, it launched a lot of people. Uh, um, you know, I'm still friends with uh, lots of people that I worked with back then. That's the great thing about this business. Um, you know, uh, you see people before they're famous. And then when they're famous, they're just the same people, but, you know, with a few more bob, aren't they, really? Mm. So what was it like um, touring with Pulp then? Touring Pulp, it, it was uh, not the glamour you'd think it was. Not many people used to turn up. This was before they got famous. So they made, about, I don't know, about 10 albums before they got famous. And um, uh, so they were, they were out of Sheffield. And I, was, I was living in uh, Chesterfield. And I had, a, I had a record shop in Chesterfield called Planet X Records. And I, I basically I cashed in me uh, me pension from uh, from the insurance brokers. I started up this uh, um, record shop, and uh, and so I I tour with all the bands. And what they do is they they tour like three bands together, and it was called Outrage Entertainment. And uh, the chap who ran uh, Digby's Drill, uh, Oggy, was the sort of the main organizer. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Digby's Drill. Um, 
I, I wish they'd have made it big. They were, they were absolutely brilliant ahead of the time. But um, so what we do, we turn up to a, to a gig. And I always remember the, probably the worst one we went to was the um, Lucifer's, it was called. That was their name to remember. It was the Morecambe Beer Keller. Right. So uh, the first band to play was Midnight Choir, which was a goth band. Uh, and they got through one song and, and the man came and told us to pack up. So we got back in the van and we drove back from Morecambe to, to Sheffield. Uh, um, and and they, we, he gave us the money. And I always remember going back thinking, we call you an outrage entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but even even when Paul was on the bill, uh, we you know they would play uh, places and nobody would turn up. Um, probably my best gig with them was the Marquee Club in London, uh, and and uh, Jarvis had fell out of his window, uh, well fell out of Russell's window, Russell the violinist, uh, and he broke his legs, uh, and so I had to wheel him on in a in a wheelchair. Uh, you probably remember at the time, I'm going back to the 80s, uh, that um, uh, Morrissey used to have that false earpiece and he had them glasses where there were no actual lens in them. So it was a bit like, you know, it looked like I was, that Jarvis was doing a, you know, a sort of a up in the game. Um, but he wanted, he did genuinely broke his legs. Still danced in his chair though. That time. He could have stuck with it. But I, I used to do the bits between bands. So while the bands were sort of changing over, I'd do uh, you know sort of ten minutes. Were they kind of airy gigs at all? Because whether it, I guess people aren't there to see poetry, are they? Well, they, well, they're not. But there, there was a there was a culture of uh, uh, poets doing it at the time. If you think of uh, um, uh, my favourite was Seething Wells. So Seething Wells, Attila the Stockbroker, Little Brother. Uh, all, the, all these sort of people were um, were doing stuff at the time, um, and I called myself Henry Normal because to start off with, um, I'd still got my suit on from from being an insurance broker. Uh, um, so I thought if I get up in front of these uh, punk uh, audiences, um, I've done the joke before they have. Um, mm. So uh, you know, and I, I, but I generally went down well. I got a few, I got a few uh, good reviews in NME and Sounds, and you know. Uh, that was quite nice. I listened to uh, one of your poems, uh, "Love at First Sight," uh, oh, yeah. today, um, and that at the end of it had me crying. Um, I thought that's a that's a beautiful poem. That's from an early radio show that you did, right? Um, that, I, I wrote a lot of uh, love poems in in my youth. I mean, obviously, I'm going on a bit now, so you, you don't think of uh, uh, love in those sort of terms as much. But that love at first sight was a genuine sort of um, uh, reaction to being in love with a uh, very beautiful uh, woman. Uh, who uh, I moved to Manchester from Chesterfield because uh, um, somebody I was in love with moved to Manchester. And that was the only reason I, I went to Manchester and met people. She then moved to London and I, I realised I didn't love her that much. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, yeah. when I was talking with Paul, but I actually had an album out. I don't know whether you've ever seen this, uh, uh, um, Nick, but I had an album called uh, um, uh, Ostrich Man. I've not seen it. I'll, I'll send you a copy. Yes, please. 
yeah, uh, for, for your for your collection. Um, but I, 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 I sort of, I, w I was a little bit more because I was younger then. I was a little bit more, um, uh, I won't say aggressive, but uh, um, upbeat, shall we say, and uh, a little bit more faster. And uh, um, you know, I used to do a lot of things about youth culture. So I do stuff about goths and uh, you know and sort of grebos and and things like that. Whereas now you you tend to reflect the the, the lifestyle that you're in. Um, so we, I mean we we haven't really scratched the surface on and we've got like hard we're running out of time. Oh, um, okay. So you went from uh, so you one of my favourite things when I was growing up was the Paul and Pauline Carr video diaries. Oh yeah. And uh, and Coogan's and Run. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love those, but probably my all-time favourite bit of TV, and I stand by this, and I bring it up every so often, is uh, the Tony Farino phenomenon. Yes, yeah. I watched it the other day after after watching you. Uh, I thought I'll, oh. I'll re-watch it, see, see how it stands up. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I, 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 I was reminded um, that you love uh, those really bad rhymes. Uh, yeah. Things don't quite rhyme. And there's some great uh, um, bad rhymes in uh, Tony Farina Phenomenon. I'll tell you a little bit of background to Tony Farina. So um, it, it was, Steve thought up the idea of Tony Farina when we were on tour. because so I toured with him uh, for the first tour, Live and Lewd. Uh, and um, and we when we were in the van, uh, we'd just think up song titles. So all we had to start off with. Uh, now he didn't have uh, the only name he had to start off with was Tony, uh, uh, which was sort of if you think about it, sort of like a Frank Sinatra sort of uh, uh, name. Tony. So Tony, uh, um, and uh, and I come up with the name Farino, which was based on Lou Farino, um, the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Uh, uh, um, I just thought it sounded Portuguese, uh, um, so uh, so we so the the very first things that we wrote were basically song titles like um, uh, "You're My Children's Au Pair" was one of the first ones uh, we thought. So we were just thinking of you know uh, bigamy at Christmas. We're just thinking of uh, so so first off we had the idea that he was uh, um, a Lothario, and uh, and then we started talking about things like uh, his dad had been a um, uh, you know, a fascist, uh, and then we started talking about the sort of dodgy sort of uh, you know he was involved in murders uh, and basically killing his wives, uh, and and uh, and it just grew uh, and became a character, and then uh, um, you know he, he, he managed to do uh, it was it was a very fast turnaround that show actually we we, we wrote it and and Steve filmed the entire thing in one one night. Wow. So when I, when I watch it back, right, there seems to be sections that are filmed without an audience and sections yeah, that were filmed during the day, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, so the links were filmed separately and then he came out and he did all the songs in one night. Yeah, uh, uh, all the songs and some of the links. But the things like um, Papa Bendy, uh, yeah. uh, we filmed during the day uh, and they were cutaways, which we played to the audience. That's incredible. I mean, so there's so many songs, and they're all almost different genres. Yeah. Uh, and they're funny in different ways. Um, I, but also, he one of one of the best titles was the song called "Valley of Our Souls." Oh yes, yeah, yeah. And that's so, and it takes ages for the penny to drop on the audience <laughs> before they get it. 
Um, yeah. And then, like, a couple of years ago, uh, Robert Redford and Jane Fonda made a film called Our Souls at Night. Oh, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just like, like, it was just absolutely incredible to think that basically uh, Jane Fonda and Robert Redford have made a Tony Farino movie. Uh, uh, one of my best bits of Tony Farino was um, uh, the, I don't know whether you've seen this, the interview we had on Clive Anderson. Yes, they, that was because he came because he did Partridge on Clive Anderson as well, didn't he? Yeah. Well, on, on the Tony Farino, he was filming uh, a film during the day, so I had to go to his um, his uh, Winnebago, uh, and uh, basically, I, I, he was he was crawling across a floor, and he got a road, and he got knee pads on, and he had to keep crawling across the floor, and they 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 do a take, and then he'd come back. Uh, and, and we wrote it in about two days, that, that thing. Uh, and I was writing it with uh, him uh, still, because he likes to rewrite and rewrite uh, throughout the day. And then I went to the show with him uh, and, and uh, we were rehearsing it and rehearsing it all the way through to, to the show. And the great thing was, when he went on, he forgot some of the lines. But uh, what Clive Anderson did was, he had another guest on and then he had Steve back on as Tony Farino, and did all the other lines and then just cut it together. So when you see it, uh, it looks beautiful. And I always respected uh, Clive Anderson for helping him do that. Um, but the most some... mem memorable part of the night was uh, um, the guest that was on before Steve was uh, Gorbachev. And when he came off, he stood next to me. So I was stood with Gorbachev. Uh, there was a couple of Evies next to me watching Steve. <laughs> do Tony Farino and Gorbachev was laughing. <laughs> that's incredible. I think that's, that's what, like, it's like what you were saying before about TV and collaboration though. That if you're Clive Anderson, what you want to have at the end of it is the best show. Yes. So it makes total sense to to bring people back and and get, uh, get have another chance to do it. So when you watch the show and see what an odd time Steve gives Clive Anderson on the show just uh, realised that Clive Anderson's such a generous man that he, uh, he helped him you know, dish out <laughs> some more uh, um, insults I think that's <laughs> right what you're saying about being a producer as well before, because I often think that about, you often see like comics in Edinburgh or comics you know, and I think so often when they get to do TV they end up doing something which is nothing like their live act and it seems to remove everything that was sort of special about it in the first place. Yeah. Now, Nick will tell you, whenever I get people in to, to Baby Cow when I was working, I did 17 and a half years of Baby Cow, I'd say to them, is this what you want to do? Because if you want to do something else, let's do the something else. You, you've got to want to do it. And I know, I'm going to ask you this on camera, Nick, because I know for comic effect, you, you, you give a downer on, on Uncle. Uh, on stage and I can understand that but I love you in Uncle I absolutely yeah. love it. I, 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 th I think you added so much to that, that show wouldn't have been that show without you well I just I just I love, yeah I love Uncle and I love uh, I love the kid and um, uh, I'm still in contact with Ollie and Lila but the thing is people just automatically assume that I write Uncle so it's sort of like this constant frustration where you go uh, you know, you're in a meeting and people go, wow, yeah, the scripts are amazing. You did great. And you're just like going, oh, you want to talk to the writers? You don't want to talk to me. You know? <laughs> yeah, but so do, you, do you know what? As, as a man who's written for 
some great actors. Like uh, some of the jokes I've written over the years wouldn't have been half as funny if I had written for shit actors, right? Uh, uh, you, you, there's a way people put things over, and also there's bits in uh, Uncle that are nothing to do with the jokes that are to do with reactions. So one of the things that I used to do in the edit, uh, um, and I always used to invite you into the edit, if you remember, uh, um, was I'd look for the reactions that weren't the joke, that, that were the reactions to the joke. And I could always wow. look to you to, to get a reaction. And, I, you know, there, there were episodes where uh, you, you may not have said as much as you'd like, but we always got the reaction. And very often the reaction would get the laugh. Now you can't write a reaction. I did, um, I did a, but I did an untelevised pilot once, and um, the producer on that said, "It's amazing, you're acting even when you're not talking." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I know, that's the job, right?" Yeah, you see, that comes naturally to you. Now I, I remember we had, um, we, we, uh, I, I wrote a thing with Caroline and Craig called Mrs. Merton and Malcolm. Uh, and we had a child actor on it, uh, uh, and um, you won't see this because we cut it out in the edit, but every time he finished speaking, his eyes would go. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as he finished speaking, we'd have to cut to, to Craig. Uh, um. <laughs> and I, think, I think you're right though, Henry, because I think like, I remember like seeing Uncle when it started, and it felt like a sort of, just such a perfect vehicle for Nick in that way that it felt like, oh, it's like he sort of made it himself. It felt like... Well, it was originally, um, cool because we'd done the blaps together and I'd had, like, a meeting, the script came along, and I don't know how long the script had been about, but it was about an out-of-work actor, and I went in for a meeting, I'd read the script, and I went in for a meeting, and I met Ollie, and, and Henry was there, and Henry was basically like, uh, do you like the script? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you like Nick? And Ollie was like, yeah. And then he goes, okay, fine, do you want to work together? And it was like, uh, uh, yeah. And then he goes, brilliant. And you didn't make me audition, uh, because I, I still swear that if I'd have had to audition for Uncle, I wouldn't have got it. Yeah, so I'm really grateful that you did that. that, that we that's changed all. it to a musician as well. That was the great thing. That's, that's in that meeting, he said, well, Nick can write songs, so if you make it into a musician, then Nick can do a song in the episodes. And I think me and Ollie went outside and had a little chat about what the tone would be. And then we just did it. We did, I think it was really quick. We did the pilot, and then the pilot came out. And then, yeah, anyway, Shane moved over to BBC Three, and you had connections with BBC Three. And then we went over there because, I mean, we were so really quickly running out of time. But, I mean, you're responsible for uh, Marion and Jeff. Nighty Night, Mighty Boosh, Gavin and Stacey, uh, Camping, Hunderby, uh, lots of the Alan Partridge project. I mean, you... you, you... Let, me, let, let, let me put you right on this. I'm not responsible for all those. What I am is part of the team, and I love being part of the team. Now, somebody's got to be the boss, right? But he's still part of the team. So the fact that I ran Baby Cow is just that I fell into that position, that I was able to do that. And, and being put in that position, I thought, just like when I was on Package 3, let's get me mates on. So basically, you'll see that on all our shows, people who are in the first things, like Julia Davis, made lots of things with us. 
uh, people that were on Julia Davis' show, like, uh, um, I mean, Rob came from Julia, made lots of things with us. Uh, um, uh, on the very first show, we had Ruth Jones. Uh, she made stuff with us. So it was all about making friends and then making, having little adventures with, with our friends. And uh, do you know what? They paid me. <laughs> Fantastic. It is, it's, it, but it, I think it is the way to do it. It's a sort of, I just think there is a, an element of those people know what they're doing. Well, they, they certainly have an idea. And if they come in saying, I want to do this, then surely it's the best way to say, yeah, go off and do that. I, I, yeah, but that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Because when I did my blaps with you, um, I came in, because you're being modest, because when I did my blaps with you, I came in and I said, well, I'd like to do that. And weirdly, one of the ideas for my blaps was to do a thing where I was giving bad advice to a kid on a park bench. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when Uncle came along, it was just like, oh, I was, sure, I don't have to write it. Someone else has written it. And um, but so you said, well, look, you've got all these songs, Nick, and you've got like these poems. You should just do, I would spent like a week trying to write something new. And you said you should just get paid finally for the stuff that you've already written. Yeah. And then you came in and you guided me like that. Are those those music videos I made with you, they still stand up today. Yeah. They're still still great. That we that we we went um extra on that um uh, no survivors uh, and we made a video of it. And even my even my own PA uh was uh was your um uh, you know oh. your, you're right. Yeah. In the, yeah. I, I love that. I, I love the, 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 that it, it made no money whatsoever. It wasn't supposed to make it. It was just a fun thing to do. Uh, and, and that'll last forever. Uh, mm. uh, you know. Amazing video. Amazing video. Yeah. Which is um, yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So thank you for coming. We've, we've got time for a game. A game? And then we've got to wrap up, but we've like literally we haven't even scratched the surface. But um, you can have, yeah. me, have me back in like a year's time or something. Absolutely. Um, but I'm just incredibly grateful for everything you've given me, Henry. So thank you for coming on the show. This, this is the game, Henry. It's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the previous person, based entirely on my own opinion. <laughs> Score points. On your opinion or mine? On my opinion. On my opinion. Right, okay. Beginning with Daniel Day Lewis. But is Doris Day better or worse than Daniel Day Lewis? Based on my opinion. Better. Worse. Worse. Is Darren Day better or worse than Doris Day? Worse. Worse. Is Tilda Swinton better or worse? than Darren Day. Better. 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 Is Christian Bale better or worse than Tilda Swinton? Worse. You're going worse, are you? I'll go worse. 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 He is worse. Is Oliver Reed better or worse than Christian Bale? Well, he's dead. He uh, is dead. <laughs> so, uh, probably better. He is better. Is Jane Fonda better or worse than Oliver Reed? Oh, no, no, uh, worse. Worse. Is Bridget Fonda better or worse than Jane Fonda? No idea. Yeah, uh, I'll go worse. I'm going to say better. Oh, yeah. What? What? Is, Is it all 
Is Henry Fonda better or worse than Bridget Fonda? Oh, better. Henry Fonda's one of the, the greats. Is Peter Fonda better or worse than Henry Fonda? Worse. Worse. Is Peter Capaldi better or worse than Peter Fonda? <laughs> uh, I, love, I, I love the juxtaposition uh, of these things. Um, worse, I'd say. I think he's better. Is he? Get him a great deal. They're high cards. They're all high cards. Well, some of them are. Um, no, no. Uh, Henry Fonda scored a sixth of them. He scored seven, Henry. I enjoyed um, that. If you remember the beginning of Tony Farino, uh, we uh, uh, we have a little line which says, uh, and here's the two Bruces, Forsyth and Willis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you are the second person to play the game this season, uh, and you scored one less than Susie Dent last week, so I'm afraid... I'm out. Uh, you're currently at the bottom of the league, but there's only two people so far. Um, uh, have you got any? Have you got anything on the radio to plug? Uh, on the radio, uh, and every, every about six months, I do a Radio Four show, but uh, um, one's recently gone out. So um, I think the next one's about communication. So I, what I do is I, I spend six months uh, ex, sort of. Um, this is good for communication, isn't it? Can't even say. <laughs> uh, uh, researching things, uh, and then I do a show about them. So I'm researching communication at the moment. Yeah, I say that as well. I spend six months doing um, re- research, and then I'll then I'll do then I'll do something. Then I'll um, do some knob gags. <laughs> All right, then. So thank you, Henry, for coming on the show. Uh, I'll see you all next week on another fun-packed edition of Fan Club, five-star family fun-sized fan club. Uh, I've been Nick Helm, this is Nathaniel Metcalf, Henry Normal, welcome to the club.